Markets tend to be very resilient. And so if you look at you know, when there's a hurricane or a tornado or other kinds of natural disasters that are incredibly disruptive and, and destructive, usually resources begin to flow to that area very quickly and the prices adjust and you, you begin recovering pretty rapidly, even from a, a major disruption. And I think what's different about COVID is the extreme role that various governments have played in shutting down economic activity and restricting trade and travel um, in a way that that messes with the ecosystem or, you know, that that prevents the mar- the natural automatic adjustments and, and calibration of the markets that basically stops all of that from happening. Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Mueller. Dr. Mueller is an Associate Professor of Economics at the King's College in Manhattan. He has published academic journals in several, I'm sorry, he has published academic articles in several academic journals, and he is the author of one book entitled, Why the Conventional Wisdom About the 2008 Financial Crisis is Still Wrong. His work has also appeared in popular outlets like USA Today, Fox News, and The Hill. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ah, and uh, I, I must say, uh, I know you've been rocking that beard for several years, but it just seems so perfect to be spending the summer in Colorado with a very manly mountain beard. I do. I do feel like I fit in here. There's a lot of people with beards up in the mountains. Uh, fantastic. Well, Paul, I wanted to uh, get you on the show in part because uh, I, I, I love the fact that I have friends who are economists and who understand the, the theory and the practice very, very well. Uh, in part, because that's not where that's not quite where life has taken me. But I want to lean on some of your learning today. In part, because I keep hearing about this thing called modern monetary theory, and uh, the term gets dropped a lot. Uh, I have students who think it's great. I have uh, a boss who thinks it's terrible. Uh, I'd love to see if you say if you could help us uh, with, with uh, knowing both kind of what this theory is and and whether or not it's true. So uh, with that, uh, Dr. Mueller, what is modern monetary theory? What should we know about it? Yeah, <clears throat> well, modern monetary theory is in some ways not modern. It, it actually, the kind of founding document and ideas behind it is uh, an article from, I think, the 1940s by an economist named Abba Lerner called Functional Finance. And that's really the, the initial piece that kind of kicks off modern monetary theory. And, and in that piece, Lerner argues that uh, money is uh, just kind of a, a token. It's not exactly an illusion, but it's just uh, a representation of the economy. And so the functional part of finance is that governments, he argues, don't have to worry about balancing the budget. They can run surpluses, they can run deficits. And what they need to worry about is the effect of their spending on the economy. And so he says, you know, in a world of what we call fiat currency, where money is not tied or redeemable to any commodity like gold, uh, it has value based on how people use it in the economy. And so Lerner's argument, and then you get to some of the modern monetary guys today, um, his argument is that the government can can spend. There's no there's no hard limit to how much money the government can spend or even create, as long as there's enough demand in the economy to use that money. 
And so that's the, the functional part. Um, and so he says, again, don't worry about balancing the budget. Don't worry. Like if you think about tax rates, if you think about borrowing or printing money, the only thing the government should be concerned about, according to Lerner, is how the economy is doing. And it is possible. He says it is possible that governments could spend too much money and that would have a negative consequence on the economy, too much inflation. But he's not worried about the government defaulting. And he's not worried about the government sort of running into some kind of hard constraint. Uh, so he says, look, you know, if, if the government runs a billion dollar deficit, uh, I'd love to hear his thoughts today. Uh, he's like, even if that happens, it would still work as long as there's enough demand in the economy to kind of incorporate that money and spend it and use it productively. Um, so again, it's this, <clears throat> this idea that the money is only a representation or a tool to foster economic activity and that government should be concerned about how they use the money, not whether they're balancing the budget, not how large the national debt is. Um, so that's his argument. And the modern monetary theorists argue very similarly that what matters is not balancing the budgets or size of deficit, but rather the effect of spending and printing money on the economy. So does that put this theory in the same neighborhood economically speaking as Keynesian economics? Are they, do they fit together? Are they identical? They are, they're not, they're not identical, they're related. So <clears throat> another figure that the uh, modern monetary theorists like a lot is an economist named Hyman Minsky. And Minsky and sometimes the modern monetary theorists who by the way are, are kind of centered at uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City is kind of a hotbed and then Bard College um, in New York are places where there are a lot of the modern monetary theorists. But all of these folks generally like Hyman Minsky's work. And, and Minsky was a follower of Keynes, but he was unusual. He was you know, what we call heterodox in the sense of he took a part of Keynes that mainstream economists and Keynesians didn't take. So that is to say, speculative investment, instability in the, the credit cycle, um, and so there's this term that a lot of these folks use called post-Keynesians. So they're not Keynesians and they're not neo-Keynesians, which is kind of like a, you know, modern, most people are sort of neo-Keynesians. So Keynesians with some corrections from the monetarists. Um, but the post-Keynesians go back to the original and, and take a particular set of ideas from Keynes um, around finance, especially. Um, so it's, it's definitely related. Again, Keynes, um, I mean, and Keynesianism argues this as well, to some extent, that the government's job is to balance out or rebalance the economy. And so they can run deficits when the economy is doing badly and then run surpluses when the economy is doing well. And I think Keynes said, you know, over time, this should kind of balance out, that, that they shouldn't just run a deficit year after year after year after year. Um, it ends up having the way versus the modern monetary theorists. They're like, oh, that's fine. Right? It doesn't matter if we ever balance the budget or if we ever pay back the debt or balance trade uh, budget deficits and budget surpluses. That, that whole calculus is just not important. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago as you were describing Lerner's theory of functional finance. Uh, now, this, this theory is based on the idea that money is a token, that it's just a representation in the economy. Uh, 
Uh, that that makes me kind of want to take this back one step further. Uh, what, what what are your thoughts on the kind of larger question of what exactly is money? I mean, is there is there a sense in which that's correct? And do do we give do we do we as actors in the economy establish the meaning of money through our demand and supply and all that, or is is money indexed to some other principle or some higher reality that it's representing that's beyond us as actors or kind of what, what are your thoughts on that whole, like, what exactly is a dollar bill or at this point, digital currency in my bank account that I've never held because it's direct deposited and uh, I, I don't actually take it out because I use a debit card and, and so on. Like, what is money in that sense? Yeah. So, I mean, the simplest definition is, is money is a medium of exchange. It's something that we exchange things for. <laughs> um and it's true that the, the value of money is determined by market conditions, the, the buying and the selling, the supply and the demand. Um, what I think what the, the modern monetary theorists would argue is that the government is the biggest player in that market in determining the supply and the demand, and that they can increase the supply or increase demand or decrease demand um, as a way of sort of managing the value of money over time. And I think what other economists would say is that, well, the government certainly has influence, but there's a, the economy is really big and there's a lot of expectations built into the value of money and thinking about inflation and that there is uh, it's not quite so easy to finesse, right? It's not just a, a machine you can fine tune. It's more of a, an ecosystem that has certain kinds of balances and resiliency. But if you take things too far, you can destroy part of the ecosystem, which then has effects throughout the whole thing. And you can't just replace what was destroyed very easily uh, to rebalance things. So I think that's another difference in approach, like how how cautious or how optimistic are we that we can, again, fine tune the economy, the interest rates, the amount of the, the deficit. Um, and so there's a lot of debates around this, but I think that's, that's part of the difference. So the, the money, the value of money has to do with what people accept for it. And so prices are a measure of the value of money. So when we say we have inflation and prices generally are rising, on the flip side, it means that the value of our money is falling because it takes more money to buy the same thing that we used to buy. Okay. No, I really, that, that is, you got me intrigued with this ecosystem idea. And that, uh, does, does that tie into kind of our current global COVID shortages? I mean, I know the, the school mm. I work for had, uh, we ended up being able to solve this problem, but our IT team is fantastic. They managed to supply what we needed somehow. But for a couple of weeks, we thought we were going to be about 400 iPads short to start the school year. And the uh, the word we got was that that was really about chips in Taiwan and kind of a global microchip shortage. And I've started to see these shortages kind of everywhere. Is that a result of messing with the ecosystem in a way? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. This didn't just you know come out of nowhere. Um, it very much had to do with uh, unexpected disruptions, unexpected changes in demand, and most importantly, restrictions, political restrictions 
on people's ability to work, produce, exchange, you know, with different countries sort of shutting off commerce and trade at different times and shutting, you know, stay at home orders. And so it's, you know, it's the sort of thing that, that markets tend to be very resilient. And so if you look at, you know, when there's a hurricane or a tornado or other kinds of natural disasters that are incredibly disruptive and, and destructive, usually resources begin to flow to that area very quickly and the prices adjust and you, you begin recovering pretty rapidly, even from a, a major disruption. And I think what's different about COVID is the extreme role that various governments have played in shutting down economic activity and restricting trade and travel um, in a way that that messes with the ecosystem or, you know, that that prevents the mar- the natural automatic adjustments and, and calibration of the markets that basically stops all of that from happening. Um, and, and then you also have this other idea of um, what you might call cascading failures. So like one problem or bottleneck leads to other problems. And then you have like multiplying problems. So it's like, you know, one, one major check in the, the ecosystem that creates all of these ripple effects in other places. So, you know, we've got the chip shortage and, you know, lumber prices are really high and we've got, you know, crazy things happening with housing prices. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of different things that are interrelated in sometimes a long chain of, of connections. Uh, you're not kidding about that lumber shortage. I was uh, I was looking at what it would cost to redo my deck, and uh, two or three or three years ago, I looked at lumber prices, and I was looking at about twenty dollars a board for standard deck boards. Uh, Lowe's will still sell me standard deck boards, but I looked three weeks ago at ninety-two dollars a board. And oh my goodness! <laughs> I was insane. I'm like I'm going to stick around with this rickety rickety deck a little bit longer. I'm hearing everything you're saying makes me think that President Biden's administration is rather directly embracing that theory that the government should be the largest actor in the economy. And at least his budget proposals, I I haven't seen any, I haven't followed any updates in the last couple of weeks since our school year started, but at least over our summer, it looked like uh, he was proposing trillions of increased, trillions of dollars of increased government spending. And we still haven't got an infrastructure bill, but it seemed to assume that uh, you could just spend infinitely. Uh, is it is it accurate then to say that President Biden and his administration as a group, if they embrace an economic theory, they're over here on the modern monetary set of assumptions? Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I don't know how how much they they read the modern monetary theorists directly, but uh, it, it is very consistent with that theory. And I think is a big part of the justification. I mean, but what's happened, government officials and politicians have basically thrown out the idea that debt or balancing the budget or um, limiting spending, that, that those have any meaning at all, that they, that they have any benefit to the economy. And so we're embarking on this kind of grand experiment, and it, it is an extension of the Keynesian idea. So if you look back over the last 40 years, we've run budget deficits in like 37 or 38 of the last 40 years. So there already was this sort of strong bias towards spending more than is raised in tax revenue and running budget deficits. And you know, the U.S. debt is, is enormous and growing more rapidly all the time. 
Um, but I think there was always this, this um, kind of uneasiness that, yes, we're spending more than we're bringing in revenue. Yes, we have a budget deficit. The debt is rising, but the economy is growing faster and, you know, the, the, we can kind of manage the rate of growth of the, the debt. And there's always this kind of, well, we can't spend forever or we can't spend whatever we want, you know, that, that's not realistic. And I think, at least for many people in Congress and in the White House, they've said, well, why not? <laughs> why isn't that realistic? You know, we've been doing it for decades and decades. Maybe there is no real constraint. Maybe there is no real downside to, to unlimited deficit spending, to creating money, um, to stimulating the economy. And, um, you know, modern monetary theorists have argued that for a long time. I think the question is, you know, is that true? Um, and what are the ramifications if we are experimenting against reality? I know on an individual level, I can take on a certain amount of debt and I can manage that debt. Uh, and I have to, I always have to, we've recently just bought a car and my, my wife and I looked at our budget and we looked at what was possible and we walked into a dealership knowing we can do this, but not that uh, inside of our budget. Uh, Cause we, we spent nine years paying off school loans. And the, the reality for the individual is money is a limited thing. And if I want to do lots of exciting excursions and adventures and vacations, all of that is limited by how much money I've got. But that doesn't, the, the, I guess that question of reality is right where I want to go, where I really want to get your thoughts on. I mean, the, if our government is acting on an assumption that those pressures that are real for the individual are not real for the state, is that a true assumption? And if it's if it is or is not, like how would we know? Do we have to break our economy to then look back and say, like, Dagnabbit, we were wrong a decade ago. We destroyed the best economy the world has ever known. Or is there yeah. some way we could know that this is a bad idea from from really from the outset, or at least from the present? Yeah, that, those those are good questions. So I'll throw another book recommendation out there. So there's a an economist named James Buchanan who founded Public Choice and won the Nobel Prize. And he wrote a book called Public Principles of Public Debt. And in that book, he addresses some early versions of this functional finance idea uh, or modern monetary theory. It wasn't really a cohesive theory at the time, but a lot of people are arguing, a lot of economists in the 60s and 70s, they argue just what you said, which is, yes, budget constraints and debt for individuals are important and you can't just sort of borrow forever, but government's spending is different. Um, and the argument that they made is that um, government spending and borrowing is different because when the government borrows, it creates an asset. That is to say it borrows money, but it, it issues a treasury bond which investors can buy and then they get paid back over time. And these treasury bonds are financial instruments that people use. And so uh, the, the, the analogy they use is like, yes, as an individual, if you take on debt and you spend the money, you are now in debt and you're obligated to pay it back and you might not be able to. But they said government, it's more like, think about a family. Imagine a family of, of four people and one person in the family lends money to the other person in the family. So one person, the person in the family who's borrowing, they're more in debt individually, 
But the person who lent them the money, they now have an asset. Like they're not in debt. They're actually have, you know, whatever the loan is plus interest. And so the argument is, as long as the money stays within the family, the family is no more in debt than before, even if different people within the family owe money or are owed money. And so they talk a lot about the um, fallacy of composition. So a lot of times, and Adam Smith did this, and it's, it's very easy to do, we argue that, well, this is true for individuals, the things that you talked about, uh, and therefore it must be true for government. But the fallacy of composition is that what is true for the individual may not be true for the group if everyone behaves in the same way. So if I'm in a theater and I stand up, I have a better view than before. But if everybody stands up, everybody doesn't have a better view than before. And so there is this, this way in which sometimes everybody doing something creates a different kind of effect than one person doing something. Um, and so that's kind of the argument that they make that, that who, whether the money stays within the country or we're borrowing outside the country, that's important. And are we lending, you know, do we owe it to ourselves or do, do we owe it to other people? And they also talk a lot about, you know, in terms of real resources, right? Money is just this, this um, <clears throat> symbol, accounting, denominator, um, uh, unit of account. What really matters is how many houses do we have? How many cars? You know, what's our sort of material standard of living? And will this debt reduce our material standard of living? And what, what these economists, and again, they're kind of precursors of, of modern monetary theory, would argue is that there's no way to transfer resources through time. So one of the big questions is, are we putting our children, and our grandchildren in debt, right? Are we, are we mortgaging our future as a country? And they said, look, we're not extracting resources from 2050 to 2010 or from 2000 to 1960. Like, even though we're taking on debt, what happens is government spending is increasing. And that's why we're borrowing more. And that increased money is being used to buy real resources in 1960 or in 2000. And so the government is getting a greater share of the available resources at that moment in time, not a greater share of resources in the future. And so, again, these are the arguments that people would make that we owe it to ourselves, that we're not actually transferring real resources from the future to the present. Um, and therefore, the, the, the debt itself, if it's held internally, is not um, is not a problem. is is kind of sustainable in some ways indefinitely because there's no no real distortions going on in terms of transfer of resources from different groups of people or across time. Well, what about <laughs> and I, what is that? What how would you respond to like the status quo where an increasing amount of American debt is held by foreign companies or foreign nationals? I mean. Yeah. People, I'd, I'm not going to name names, but uh, folks I sometimes think of as sort of the uh, the crazy uncles of the conservative movement are, uh, they'll, they'll, they would be over here shouting, China, China holds all of our debt. And so what happens to that theory if uh, if other countries are looking at this and say, well, America, fine, y'all can keep creating debt. We're just going to buy an increased portion of your economy and eventually we'll control everything. Yeah, yeah. So the the economists in the '70s would be very, very concerned about that. I'm not sure modern monetary theory guys are so concerned about that because, again, they're not so concerned about paying back the debt in in a, in a particular way. Like for them, it's kind of well, whatever. It's it's you know, um, we're going to keep creating more and you know maybe devalue it. I haven't. 
I haven't read them recently. I don't know what their stance is on inflation. I mean, I, I don't think they're advocating like we should inflation is good and we should have a lot of it. Uh, there might be some. I mean, because if you have inflation, it reduces the real value of your debt significantly. So one way that governments who borrowed heavily get out of debt is they inflate their currency and basically, yeah, we know we owe you, you know, our debt is $100 billion and that's a lot of money. They said, we're going to inflate so much that $100 billion is like the price of a car. And so we're just going to basically print so much money that it's a piece of cake for us to pay the debt back. Uh, it's never that simple, but that's kind of the, the idea I think that people are sometimes drawn to. In terms of foreigners holding the debt, I think that, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of, of different things we could discuss in that front, whether that's driving the, the trade deficit, because those are related, those are two, two parts of the same coin, that even as they buy fewer goods from the U.S. than we buy from them, they buy more assets from the U.S. than we buy from them. So there's actually the, the trade deficit mm. is what's called the, the current account for goods and services. But there's also something called the capital account where you keep track of financial transfers and debt and so forth. And it turns out the capital account and the current account balance each other out almost perfectly year over year over year. And so even as the U.S. has had large trade deficits for the past several decades in the current account, They've had equally large uh, current account trade surpluses because we've been exporting financial assets, uh, particularly U.S. debt. And so the question is, which one drives the other one? And so anyways, there's a lot of stuff that takes into trade and so forth. But you know what, what Buchanan argues, so what I presented is sort of the, the orthodox view of public finance economists in the 70s, and, and Buchanan was rejecting that. And he said, look, there's a difference between... Um, who pays for the debt and who bears the burden. And so the example he gives is the following. He says, you know, as a professor himself, imagine I'm in front of students. Students are there, they're in class, I'm there teaching. I am bearing a cost of being there, right? I'm not doing other things. Like it's, I have to give up things and I'm the one delivering the teaching. So like in, in some real sense, I'm bearing the cost of teaching them. But it would be weird to say that I'm bearing the burden of the cost of education because I'm being paid to teach, right? The students are paying, I'm being constant. So it's true that I'm giving up the opportunity to do other sorts of things, but I'm being compensated. And this is his point. It's true that when government borrows a lot of money and buys up more resources in the economy, that there are fewer resources for everybody else to use. But when it borrows that money, people are lending it. And in lending it, they're voluntarily giving up money and the ability to buy resources in the present in order to be paid in the future. And so he says it's totally wrong to argue that the current generation is bearing the burden of debt. They're not. They are voluntarily sacrificing the use and control of money and resources and ceding that over to the government and lending it money, but they are going to be compensated in the future. And so they're not bearing the real cost or burden of the borrowing. The people who are really going to bear that cost and burden are those in the future who have to pay higher taxes or have higher prices or, you know, basically have to pay back the people who voluntarily lent money to the government. So Buchanan then, if I'm piecing this together correctly, Buchanan would argue that even if the government is the actor, the debt is still real. <laughs> And the debt must be repaid. 
And even if repayment is just pushed down the generations, the debt, the debt will eventually be repaid. It always is. I mean, we could go into the details of how the debt works. So, I mean, unless you default, the debt is, is repaid. However, what, what really happens, and this is what, you know, a lot of companies do this, a lot of financial firms have done this. This is actually what got Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and other companies in the 2008 financial crisis in trouble. They had a lot of debt. And what they would do is they would roll it over. That is to say, they would owe $10 billion and that would be coming due in a week. And what they would do is they would uh, borrow a new $10, million, $10 billion to pay off the old $10 billion, or they would renew, they pay interest and then renew the debt. And so the debt is, is repaid in a sense, but it's repaid with new debt. And this, the federal government does this constantly. So it's constantly paying, you know, paying off tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of treasuries that were issued 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's paying them off. But in paying them off, it's also issuing new treasury bills that are doing 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So there's this constant rolling over of the debt. And the, the real crux of the matter comes into, comes into play with the interest rate, right? What are they able, when they, when they are issuing new treasury bonds, what interest do they have to pay on the new treasury bonds? What are people willing to, to buy the bonds for or lend the money to the government for? And what can happen is the more debt that you roll over, the more vulnerable you are mm. to interest rate changes. And a, a big part of the debate with modern monetary theorists is they argue that the government has extensive and, 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 and significant control over interest rates that they, through the Federal Reserve and, mo and monetary policy, they, the, the interest rates are completely within their control. Versus a lot of other economists that I would put myself in this camp say, well, they have influence, obviously, but you can't, you know, if, if there's pressure building up to push interest rates higher, then the government has to take larger and larger steps to hold that pressure back. And, and the steps that they have to take are going to have larger and larger consequences. So the, the concern is, as you have a growing national debt, as you're rolling over more of the debt, the interest rate becomes significant. So think about it this way. If, um, you know, if we have, if the national debt is a trillion dollars and we have to, to reissue that at 3%, we're paying $30 billion in interest every year, okay? But, but if, for whatever reason, the interest rate jumps to 10%, mm -hmm. now we're paying $100 billion a year in interest. And I say 1 trillion, our debt is more like 20 trillion. So multiply that by 20. So 30 is really, like, it's really like $600 billion in interest at 3%. And at you know 10%, it's $2 trillion in interest, like in, in interest costs every year. And so what, what people are concerned about, especially monetarists uh, specifically, is that these things can sort of build and spiral out of control. That if, if you lose control of the interest rate and you have to keep refinancing your debt, the amount of interest you have to pay can balloon rapidly and then you borrow money to pay the interest. And so it's this, it's sort of it's the idea of compound interest, but compounding debt. Um, and again, what the modern monetary theorists argue is basically we can control the interest rate and or we can just print the money to pay it off if we have to. Uh, and what a lot of us are saying is like, 
Yeah, you could. But to argue that that is not going to have incredible inflationary pressure and consequences seems naive in the extreme. I mean, it seems like it seems to me pretty self-evident that in July of 2021, things are objectively more expensive than they were a year ago. And yeah. I mean, uh, the, injecting, I don't know how many billions of dollars into the economy just through stimulus payments in the last year, that does have an obvious effect. People got, uh, I think we got 1200 1800 a piece last year in uh, tax money coming back to me, which, I mean, I will take any and all of my money that the government wants to send back to me. That's wonderful. Please deposit it. That's great. But don't tell me that that's not going to have an effect because- we, we, my wife and I made choices that we wouldn't have made if we didn't have that money. And we can use that. And, but that, this, this seems to me very pretty obvious that modern monetary theory is based on a set of flawed assumptions. I mean, and if you begin from sort of an Austrian perspective that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're, you're, much more, you're much better read in this than I am, but uh, von Mises and his circles would essentially argue that economics is a function of people's choices. And we're looking at the economy, like Smith argued centuries ago, you're looking at the combined results of millions of choices in a given moment, much more like your ecosystem analogy earlier. And that if you try to like mess with that, it has, it has, it necessarily has unintended consequences. And so assuming that you can control that and you can control the interest rate I mean, I remember the first time when I bought, when my wife and I bought our house, my dad warned me, you want a fixed interest rate on your mortgage because he remembers a, a decade that had escalating mortgages and getting 18% on a mortgage was somewhat normal. <laughs> I mean, so that just, yep. I don't really know where to go with that, but it just seems to me pretty self-evident that modern monetary theory is both flawed and ultimately based on a, on a non-real understanding of money and economic choices. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's mostly right. Um, I think they they do have uh, a couple insights that are were, are helpful for hardcore monetarists who who neglect the importance of supply and demand of of money and credit in the economy, and who who think that the Federal Reserve has more power than it does. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're seeing inflationary pressures. I mean, what people are arguing now, so like. Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve, well, what he argues is, yes, prices are higher, but a big part of that is because of the supply disruption. So prices can go up because demand increases or because supply decreases or some combination of both. And so the argument he and Janet Yellen at Treasury and others are arguing is that supply has decreased in significant ways. So lumber would be an example, chips would be an example. And so we have these different blockages or shortages in the economy. And that's why prices are higher. But once those supply chain problems are resolved, uh, we'll see stabilization or even prices coming down. I think that's you know naively optimistic. Um, you know, again, as I've told people before, if, if we don't see pretty noticeable inflation over the next several years, I'm gonna have to rethink a lot of my economic theory because you know creating more money giving money directly to people to spend. Uh, I mean, that is the definition of inflation is creating more money and people spending more money. One of the hard things to observe is that the, the money often, it is, it's not like uh, filling a bathtub. Sometimes people talk about like the, you know, you fill a bathtub with water, is money coming in. 
and you know the level of the waters, the level of prices, and so water comes in and it pretty immediately spreads across the whole surface. Um, the the in the economy, there's there are far more. Um, it's a far more varied terrain, and so money kind of flows in particular channels, and so we're seeing massive amounts of money in housing, for example. So I think we're in a housing bubble. I've argued with people about this. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that you know, despite the various kinds of shortages that exist with lumber and housing supply, I understand there are some supply side issues with housing prices, but the, there's no doubt in my mind that demand has been fueled by extremely low interest rates and huge amounts of injections of money, whether it's into individuals' accounts or into companies that employ those individuals or those individuals own. Um, there's just a ton of money that's that's in the economy and that liquidity finds its way into different sectors of the economy so, so if, into some sectors more quickly than other sectors uh, and so that makes it hard to track because there's a lot of unevenness where if you look at the price of you know milk or eggs the prices haven't changed that dramatically versus the price of houses you know are unbelievable and the, you know cars car repair various kinds of electronics, you know, even if you don't see it in the prices, you see it in the shortages of not being able to get stuff or wait times. Well, several uh, uh, car lots last week that were uh, less than a quarter of their normal inventory. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. So there's just massive, yeah, massive liquidity that leads to more buying. And it, the, what makes it hard to see is there's a lot of unevenness where, you know, some sectors see a lot of it. Other sectors don't see very much. And, uh, and then it makes it hard to tell. Is this because of the increased amount of money or is it because of some real factors? So, again, housing, the people I argue with say, well, yeah, there's money in the economy, but housing is driven by, you know, the, a huge number of people coming of age. Like there's actually the, the current millennial generation, I think is larger than the baby boomer generation. Mm. Um, and so they're arguing there's actually this massive increase in the number of people who are interested in looking for houses from 20 years ago or 30 years ago in, in conjunction with, you know, slow down and low housing inventories and, and slow building. So they argue those really high housing prices are totally a market normal market factor of, you know, massive increase in demand and limited supply. Um, you know, and again, there's parts of that, but it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's almost impossible to tease out how much of it is because of more buyers and, you know, restrictions on supply versus how much of it is those buyers have more money than they did before, or interest rates are particularly low. Um, and again, I think that a lot hinges on the interest rates and it's going to be really interesting to see as inflation begins to pick up, if or whether the Federal Reserve is going to kind of try to maintain low interest rates, like whether they can, if they want to, and if they don't, as soon as interest rates begin moving, a lot of things are going to change in the housing market, in mm. the, the car market, in the corporate sector, and potentially even in government, like I mentioned before, is, you know, for each you know, whatever. So we have 20 trillion in debt. So every 1%, every, you know, one point movement in percentage adds another 200 billion in interest costs. And so, you know, there's going to be some increasing concern, I think, if interest rates move noticeably. So we'll see. I, I don't know. It's, it's uh, uncharted waters in some, some ways.
adventurous times, that's for sure. Uh, well, Paul, as we are kind of uh, moving towards wrapping up, let me ask you uh, three questions to uh, wrap up our time together today. Uh, last time we spoke on a different podcast, it was, we had just gotten into, I think it was just after the first COVID stimulus payment. And I, I remember being very surprised when uh, you told me that you thought the, uh, that at that point, stimulus payments made sense because we had frozen a monetary economy and we had to have money in order for people to basically meet basic needs. I found that really helpful uh, just to kind of think about, okay, why are we doing this? All right, that, that logic makes sense. Um, a year later, do you still stand by that, or would 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 you would you go back and and would you suggest a different path if we were in that same position again? Yeah. So from an economic standpoint, I do stand by it. Uh, in terms of the initial payment was good for the economy, um, and it wasn't just the stimulus payment; it was also the the loan the lending programs and so forth. So, you know, the reason why I reluctantly you know say that that was generally a good idea, at least in theory is because this wasn't sort of your run-of-the-mill slowdown or recession or correction. This was a precipitous government shutdown, right? where the government was literally shutting stuff down, telling people that they can't work or not to go to work. And if you're going to do that, I mean, basically going back to the idea of the ecosystem and the market, you know, the visible hand that actually talks about the coordination and the adjustment that naturally happens within markets generally very well, the government response to COVID just blocked many of those mechanisms from functioning. It's just sort of like, we're just going to, this is normally what would happen in the face of a shortage, but we're just going to tell people not to do it. So what you have happening is a, a massive, so, so given the massive truncating and handicapping of the economy by government policy, stimulus payments and loans make sense because the because the market is not going to be able to adjust legally uh it's going to have all these restrictions so that was why i i was generally supportive of it then I, even at the time and still i knew it was going to be incredibly wasteful uh, i think you know the mistake was the government intervention so i would i would argue for a totally different kind of covid response and it's kind of what we talked about i think last year but given what governments had done in terms of shutting stuff down, the payments made sense. And, and to be honest, you know, the, the response that, that advocates of it can say is, hey, you know what? Like the economy is still moving forward. Like, you know, people are not dying in the streets. We're not in the Great Depression. You know, we, we don't see unemployment hovering at 20 percent or 25 percent. Um, and so in some ways, you can look back and be like, there are problems in the economy for sure. And probably not heading in a good direction. But we're also, you know, didn't have a catastrophic failure of the economy. Like it, it functioned lots of, you know, it was disruptive. It was not good. Again, all the government stuff, very opposed to. But in terms of the monetary support initially, I think made a lot of sense. Again, the political side of it is once you do it once, you can do it again, which is they did, right? They do it again oh. in the fall. They do it again in the spring. And so... You know, the, the bigger question, and I don't have a, an answer where I fall on this, is whether this move of government supporting the economy as it handicaps it. So it's kind of, again, irony of like, we're going to stop the economy from functioning and then we're going to try to jumpstart it to function again. Did we open a Pandora's box? And are all the consequences of that Pandora's box going to outweigh 
the stabilization effect of that initial um, that initial financial injection to to carry people through the the shutdowns. You know, as Ronald Reagan said, if it moves, tax it. If it still moves, regulate. If it stops moving, subsidize it. And uh, I, I'm worried that's kind of exactly what government is doing, right? Tax it, regulate it, and then when we stop it, then we have to subsidize it to get it going. So we're in dangerous, uncharted waters, I think. You know, it'll be interesting to see if this is similar to the late 70s where we hit stagflation. I think that is certainly possible. Um, and we have all kinds of weird distortions in the labor market because we have such high unemployment benefits and other kinds of payments and relief that lots of people are just choosing not to go work. Um, and so, you know, when I walk around here, small mountain town, hard to find workers, um, but there aren't that many jobs either. You walk around and the people are advertising, help wanted, you know, we're hiring this for someone $17 an hour. Uh, there's, and like, I, I remember calling the mechanic, one, one of the mechanics I called and they, the message said, as you know, we're in a big labor shortage. And so things will take a while to get to your car. The labor shortage is totally policy induced, right? I mean, if you ended unemployment benefits, you ended these COVID payments, you would see hundreds of thousands or more people go back to work who are not working right now. Um, and again, that's part of this Pandora's box um, legacy. One of the reasons I keep going back to your ecosystem metaphor analogy is an, an ecosystem takes centuries, sometimes millennia to develop together. And all it takes is a single bulldozer to destroy it. And uh, But you could have the work of many generations of creatures all kind of coexisting and sort of a natural give and take, uh, natural selection, supply and demand, uh, use, use the language that you will. And But those ecosystems have their own fragility because uh, we humans have the ability to uh, collaborate with them to work alongside those or to destroy them. And uh, a lot of, I think a lot of our, our ability to flourish as humans has everything to do with figuring out what is real and then submitting to that reality rather than insisting that everything we've ever thought about something is wrong and let's, let's try this instead. And those, right. those, those distortions, I think, uh, they, they point to the fact that we have misunderstood some very fundamental things about the motivations for work and the way work reverberates throughout our society. Now, one last practical question. If you could give three pieces of actionable advice to the Federal Reserve, what advice would you give? It's a magical world. They're going to listen to you. What would you tell them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would tell them to stop quantitative easing. This is the activity of creating money to buy various kinds of assets that they do every month in, in large numbers. Stop doing that. Uh, begin letting the interest rate rise slowly, but regularly, you know, sort of like, hey, we're going to add a quarter point every month or even every two months. If every month is too fast, we're going to add a quarter point every two months for the rest of the year to see what happens. Um, and three, I would tell them, you know, call out the ridiculous spending in DC and, and send the message that you're not going to accommodate or monetize the debt anymore. And, um, so those would be a few things. Stop buying assets with new money, let interest rates begin to rise slowly and take a more public stance saying the risks of 
over debt overhang and servicing debt and unlimited spending are significant and cannot be stopped ultimately by the Federal Reserve or by the central bank. And so Congress and the president need to get their houses in order sooner rather than later. Uh, and, and again, it's so basically, those are the three things the Fed is not doing, right? It's not telling them to get their house in order. It's not raising interest rates and it's buying lots of stuff. So basically just stop doing everything it's doing and reverse it. Uh, that would be my advice for that. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. Um, do take a second if you want. If you don't want to pitch King's College, that's fine. But I did want to give you the chance. To, uh, I know you 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 have the the privilege of working for a college that's somewhat unique. Uh, I got to spend the last year helping my students apply to colleges, and I got a whole new awareness of the fact that the vast majority of schools are basically interchangeable. So, uh, yeah. since you work for a school that is a bit unique, uh, uh, do tell us about the King's College, if you if you will. Sure. Yeah. So. King's is a small liberal arts school uh, based in downtown Manhattan. That's one of the more unique things about it. Um, but another unique thing about it is that it has one of the more extensive core curriculums of any liberal arts college in the country. So all of our students, regardless of their majors, take about half of their coursework is uh, required courses or distribution requirements. And so a lot of students are, are taking a lot of classes together. They're all taking, you know, the same classes, so they have the same foundation. And a big part of our core curriculum is, is built around um, the PPE tradition from Oxford, politics, philosophy, and economics. And so even our students who are studying media or reporting or humanities take a history of economic thought class and take micro or an introduction. So all of our students have exposure to a couple econ classes, a couple philosophy, political science. We also have a number of, of uh, religion classes that are required. So the location is, is unusual. The curriculum is unusual in that regard. And the dynamics there are, are really interesting. Being in the city brings a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities. And so we have students across the board. Some are really interested in school. Some are really interested in the city. Some are pretty devout Christians. Others are totally rejected Christianity. We have conservative students. We have liberal students. Uh, it is quite a mix of people at the college. And it's one of the unusual things where the faculty on the whole is probably more conservative than the students on the whole. That is rare. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, lots of places with faculty is more liberal than the students. Um, and like Hillsdale, I guess it would be, it's just conservative, conservative, right? Very conservative students, very conservative faculty. <laughs> but at King's, we have a lot of not conservative students and we're in a very not conservative place in mm. Manhattan. And so there's a lot of, a lot of energy, a lot of debate, uh, a lot of conversation around Christianity and the city and, you know, the intellectual life and spiritual formation. So it's a, it's a very fun place to work. And um, it's not an easy place to, to be, whether, whether as a professor or as a student. Um, but for those who come prepared and, and focus, it presents really great opportunities and um and uh, a great education that people have gone to, you know, many Ivy League law schools, they've gone to grad programs, they've started their own businesses. So it's, uh, 
that's not the safe choice, um, but it is a choice that presents lots of room for personal growth and lots of opportunity for a career, like figuring out your career and, and really getting into some cool places. So that's, you know, a quick summary of Kings where I teach. Fantastic. I know there's something about New York City that's had its place in the American imagination for a long, long time. So yep. I, I'm thrilled to know that uh, you're part of a, a great school that's right there in the heart of it. Uh, Paul, where can people follow you and your work online if they want to know more about what you think about these kinds of issues or uh, maybe yeah. message you over Twitter or something? How, how can people find your work? Yeah, well, I'm not on Twitter anymore. Um, oh. So you can find me on the King's website. I have a, a, my own website, pauldmuller.com. If you really want to know what I think, I write a weekly newsletter uh, that you could subscribe to. It's through Substack. And so I, it's called the Mueller Report. And uh, I write about all kinds of stuff. So my last report was uh, a review of the Cimmerillion. But before that, I was writing about a couple personal finance books I had read um, for a discussion with people at church. Uh, I've talked about inflation and housing prices, uh, talk about a lot of different things. So that's, that's the best way to follow what I'm thinking about. So you can look up the Mueller report online, or I also, you know, on my website, I have a little blog where I write kind of book reviews. And so lots of places you can find me if you're interested. Fantastic. Have you, you found Substack to be a good platform? You like it? Yeah, I do like it. Um, it's very easy to use and, um, you know, I have these grand aspirations if I have, you know, thousands and thousands of followers that I could move to sort of a paid model, like, you know, some really excellent writers do currently. So I'm at, I don't know, a couple hundred, but um, if that, but uh, it's a start. And it's, it's really the, the, the discipline of, of writing and thinking. And for those who do follow, I have a lot of, con- it sparks a lot of conversation with like, oh yeah, I read what you said, what about this or what about that? So uh, it's been good. It's been rewarding to, to do it. I've kind of over the summer, it's dropped off a little bit because things are kind of crazy busy with kids and managing the Abbey and doing other stuff. But um, yeah, I like, I like the Substack platform. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thank you listeners for joining us uh, for this episode of the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Uh, my guest this episode has been Dr. Paul Mueller, an economist, a professor, a uh, a property owner with uh, a vacation spot in Colorado, if you ever want to go visit the Abbey in, in uh, Colorado. And as you've heard, a regular author on Substack. So be sure to check out the Mueller Report. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, we're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.